It's the most amazing discussion. It's blowing my mind and in a narcissistic way, I love it. When you sort of indulge in, in, in a journey in life, and I, my journey was the catalyst by what I experienced as a kid, trying to find these answers, who am I, who am I, what do I stand for, where do I fit, what do I know, what do I think, what do I want to communicate? Every time you push the boundary, every time you go off the edge, every time you, you indulge in something that's very, very, very sort of organic from deep within, you, you enter new territory. And this project took me into a new territory. Everybody has an opinion. And, but then when you start an, actually analyzing where does the controversy come from, what does it stem from, what are people questioning, what am I questioning, that's when it becomes extremely interesting. As we run about our urban lives, way outside of dense populations are disappearing and endangered indigenous people whose cultures are disappearing, whose people are disappearing. Some folks may think, well, that's natural. It's been happening forever. Others fight to protect those cultures and have very strong opinions about what's right and what's wrong for those people. And one of those opinions is whether there's a right way to depict people who are different than us, who are not living in urbanized uh, or Western societies. I was surprised by just how controversial the subject really was. I guess it's okay that we are surrounded by spectacular images that romanticize cars and sports and marriage and really anything commercial. But to apply a similar heroic lens to people who are different than us, well, that could be sacrilege. It seems there's people out there that believe that documenting those folks needs to be done as a documentarian, just capturing folks as they're living versus maybe in their Sunday best, proud, celebrated, glamorized. I mean, isn't that what we do when we take pictures of ourselves? It's okay that we're beautiful, but God forbid that we make that commentary about those poor exotic people living on the edge of the world. There are no edges to this world. There's people who live far away from our dense standardized populations, but our cultures are the edge from their point of view. This week, it was my pleasure to talk to photographer Jimmy Nelson from his place in Amsterdam on his way out to another trip photographing these disappearing societies. Jimmy has been a photographer for over 30 years, and his book, Before They Pass Away, showcases tribal cultures around the world. I think there's 35 or so that he captures with stunning images. They're truly incredible portraits of vanishing people. Be sure to visit growbigalways.com on his episode page and check out a portfolio of his images as well as a video that will give you an up-close look at what it's like traveling and capturing such remote and spectacularly loving societies. 
as Jimmy puts it, photographing these people are as much about discovering them as it was about discovering himself and how he fits and belongs in the world. And really, isn't that all we're trying to do? We're all on that same journey, and I hope that you enjoy listening to Jimmy's. And it inspires you to engage in his work, which I guarantee will have a huge impact on you. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. Can we start actually with the premise that you started with here, Jimmy? Because I know if I if I understood correctly, I read up a little bit on this, but I know you started in the advertising field and then moved over to documenting and shooting photographs of indigenous and endangered societies. So I'd be super curious about that path because I'm sure, I know you found an investor to help and all that stuff, but how did you transition? Like what was the premise moving from that world of advertising and then into this completely different world that you've entered into? Well, to be honest, and I don't mean to contradict you, the the journey started far, far earlier, a long time prior to being in the advertising world. I think the real journey started as a kid between the age of zero and seven. Mm -hmm. I lived in the developing world with my parents. My father was a geologist. Uh, I traveled from every year to a different international developing destination. And Mm -hmm. I I kind of used the description. I was a little bit like a sort of a contemporary Mowgli. We sort of just lived in the bush. Uh, (laughs) Right. So all my experiences up until the age of seven were very remote, very real, very alive, um, very special. At the age of seven, they sent me to a Jesuit boarding school in the northern parts of the UK. Uh, That was extremely formative for, I mean, it depends on how you look at it now. In hindsight, probably positive reasons, but at the time it was quite uh, uh, painful. I was there for 10 years. I would spend 10 months of the year there and split into two vacations, two months with my parents, wherever they lived on the planet. But the contrast was extreme. Um, You go from the bush to 1,000 boys, 400 priests behind a wall where everything and anything can happen the rest of the world doesn't know. Uh, I was, I'm not going to go into too many details, I and amongst a number of other kids between the ages of seven and eight were sexually abused. Hmm. Um, At school? Yeah, in the school, in the school. But I mean, you know, this was sort of early 70s, so, you know, not Hmm. too atypical. Uh, typical to a lot of other English institutions with the religious sort of... uh, uh, I see. uh, So that you, you as a child, you go from one extreme to another. So I'm running around in the bush in the middle of Africa, for example, and then I'm being chased around an institution by priests. And then between the age of eight and 16, I was told I was stupid. Uh, Hmm. And I think to all intents and purposes, I was very severely dyslectic. Uh, But it wasn't something that was sort of measured. Uh, I was a very creative child, uh, perhaps even a fe- quite a feminine child. So you, you're sort of beginning to sort of be pushed into a corner. The age of uh-huh. 16, um, I was on vacation with my parents in West Africa. Uh, I got cerebral malaria and I went back to the institution. And I was very ill and the priests gave me the wrong medicine. They gave me a very heavy antibiotic called oxytetracycline which led to uh, complete and total hair loss within a period of 12 hours. 
Jesus, I, was it permanent? Well, I'm, I'm completely and utterly bald today, so yeah, seriously permanent. Uh, so you have three passages of time. One, you're abused. Second, you're told you're stupid. And thirdly, you end up waking up in the mirror and looking in the mirror one morning. And to all intents and purposes, you feel extremely aesthetically ugly. Um, I've got three kids here in Amsterdam where I'm talking from. They're late teenagers. They're very blessed because they have a very beautiful mother. They spend the whole day taking selfies of themselves and one another. And they spend the whole day complaining <laughs> how ugly they are. I, and I often mock them. And I said, you know, you guys have no idea. They never do. <laughs> they never do. So, okay, so these, this is very important to go into your question, uh, the transition. So I'm 17. I finished my high school. And I was kind of... Um, at a crossroads, a crossroads of either sort of sticking my head in the sand or in a big, big dark hole and never coming out again, or jumping. And I, as a child, to escape the, the utter fear of uh, this sort of uh, um, nightly persecution by these priests, I, I read Tintin. I mean, I don't know where they were of Tintin. Mm -hmm. yes, and I had his whole right. collection. I hid under my covers reading them and his adventures and his journeys around the, the world's wildest and most remote corners, meeting these amazing people. And so at the age of 17, inspired by Tintin and being fairly confident with sort of travel, I bought a one-way ticket to Tibet. Uh, this was 1987, 86-87. The reason was I wanted to escape. I wanted to run away. Uh, I was very unhappy. And I dressed as a monk. And I thought, where can I go on the planet where I can sort of find an element of sort of empathy and not be judged for my appearance? So I went to Tibet. I was there for the better part of two years, between 86 and 89, 88, 86 and 88. I came back. Uh, I'd had, to be honest, the most extraordinary adventure I will ever have, being looked after, being protected by Tibetans whilst we were sort of escaping the Chinese sort of cultural uh, onslaught. Right. I took a few happy snaps, as I call them of the people I met, the people that looked after me, the people that held me, the people that even loved me, and came back and showed those pictures. Uh, they were published. They were not good pictures. They were a document. They were a very simple document. I only had four rolls of, over a period of two years, only four rolls of Kodakala gold. No, it was actually just Kodakala negative. Mm -hmm. um, they were published. I thought, well, this is it. Uh, they said, you're a photographer now. And I went away again. And I spent the next hmm. six years uh, hiding in the world's war zone. So I went, the year after that, I went to Afghanistan for a year, 1989. Then I went to places like Somalia, the beginning of Yugoslavia, Central America, Nicaragua, El Salvador. And you're shooting editorially? Yeah, well, I mean, th this is the discussion, and this is actually quite interesting. I called myself a photojournalist. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't a journalist in the slightest. Um, I actually wasn't there for the subject matter itself. I was there for myself. I was there escaping. Right. Uh, and if you analyze this, and one can analyze it as one gets older, perhaps I was finding solace in other people's pain and it made my sort of uh, childhood anguish lighter and easier. Because if you're sort of lying in a bunker having bombs dropped on you and knowing that you can actually walk away from it, unlike the people you're lying in the bunker with, it makes you think, well, whatever I went through as a kid is actually far less than this, because this is life and death. 
then, then you also find an ex you have an extraordinary connection with people. You're sort of living on the edge. You're living on the edge of sort of you know uh, existence, and it's very powerful. You, you don't understand why you're doing it, um, but you're there. Um, then, when I was 25, 24, 25, I met my Dutch wife to be the Dutch. I don't know whether you're aware of that. A very, very direct people. It's an extremely direct, almost harsh culture. And my wife to be came up to me and said, "Look, you're about to die um, if you carry on doing this, and um, I'll give you one chance if you fancy sort of trying to make a life with me. Uh, that'd be great." I thought you were going to say she walked up to you and said, "You're going to marry me whether you like it or not." No, well, she essentially <laughs> said she said that. But she said, on one condition, you find a way to earn a living. Uh, yeah. And the only thing I'd done, I had no training, was I was taking pictures. So I, I moved to Amsterdam and quite quickly actually started to take commercial advertising shots. And my first big assignments were, strangely enough, for Marlboro, Philip Morris. So I sort of spent, you know, the better part of three years traveling around the American West, hanging from a helicopter and horses wow. in strange positions. And selling the, uh, cigarettes. Yeah, selling cigarettes. But I think the transition was that I was uh, capable on a location. Uh, I was capable of physically looking after myself. I was uh, physically very strong. I was very visual. I was very creative. And I had this sort of, you know, uh, uh, urge, this sort of wife, Dutch wife telling me, well, you know, if the bills aren't going to be paid, I'm going to run off the neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the transition into advertising photography. Now, what's very important and interesting, I never, I was never particularly good at it. I was competent, I was capable uh, 25 years ago, 20 years ago. There were not that many photographers, you didn't have that much competition. So if you could sort of uh, competently use an analog camera and look after yourself in strange circumstances with a client's product, um, you would get work. And for a period of time, you actually could earn quite a bit of money doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, then around the year 2010, so that's the better part of so a little bit over six years ago, uh, what dawned on me was this realization that the whole world has become digital. Uh, I was trying to sort of uh, uh, not uh, acknowledge it. But the consequences of that were that the whole world became a photographer. So the profession I'd uh, taught myself, autodeduct, had become sort of invalid. Yeah, endangered. No, well, it doesn't. It doesn't exist today. There, are, in my opinion, there aren't. Uh, there, are, there is nobody who earns their living just by taking pictures. I mean, there, there are a couple of people, right. and that was the the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning. And and then there's sort of essentially a midlife crisis or an early midlife crisis with excuse my language. Well, fuck, you know. So <laughs> right. I'm back at square right. one. And this sort of my wife again came up to me and she said, you know, um, here's the mirror. You better have a look in it. And she said, you know, it's very strange. I haven't remembered seeing you be happy for a long time. And she asked me, when was the last time you were truly, truly, truly happy? And I said, I have to admit, the last time I was truly, truly happy was sitting in a truck with a whole load of Tibetans escaping the Chinese army when I was 17. And she said, well, there's something in that. Um, whatever you do, you have to go and find that connection with yourself. And um, what it amounts to or accounts to is uh, irrelevant because anything's better than where we are now. And then I sort of had a bit of a panic saying, you know, I'm not, not about to disappear off the planet taking pictures of indigenous cultures. She said, well, anything's better than where we, where we are now. And uh, I may not be here when you get back, but that won't really matter. Maybe you'll find yourself in the process. 
Wow, so that explains a lot. So it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a long story, but I think the simple question of saying the transition from advertising photography to uh, indigenous cultural anthropological photography started a long time prior to that. But also very important was, and I talk quite a bit about this now, is, um, and I find this the utter irony, I, I find it actually quite beautiful. When I was working as an advertising photographer, we have here... Uh, the, off the advertising office of Wyden and Kennedy, and they represent Nike. It's the European uh, Nike headquarters. As right. an advertising photographer, Nike is a little bit like the Holy Grail. Uh, and I remember for many, many years uh, knocking on their door saying, employ me, employ me, employ me. And I never got one assignment from them. And that was part of the tipping point of deciding, well, I'm going to have to sort of, you know, uh, stop. And uh, a little over a year ago, uh, guess who rang me? Nike. And I thought this was somewhat ironic when I hadn't been doing advertising photography for five years. And I was sort of, you know, hanging on the edge of the telephone with my mouth dropping, saying, you know, nobody, all the, in all the pictures I make, nobody's wearing any shoes. And they laughed. <laughs> and I said, you know, so what, what, what on earth do you want to mean? And they said, well, that's, you don't get it. We want your visual signature. We want your passion. We want your creativity. And that's what you found in the subject matter that you do. And we want to be able to translate that. Uh, and prior to that, you were making us happy. Now you're making yourself happy, and that's, that's the one essence. of the things. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to dig into with you because I found myself much like when I talked to Jock Sturgis at one point, who's a photographer yeah. as well. He, yeah. you know, I remember looking at his images of nude people that mm -hmm. were pubescent, controversial. And, yeah. Yeah, and kind of having this. Yeah, exactly. I was confronted with a way of looking at something in a controversial way that mm -hmm. forced. A conversation with myself and in looking at your pictures mm -hmm. I, I went through a similar here's kind of what went through my head at first I looked at it and I was like wow those are fucking incredibly amazing uh -huh. beautiful people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that was it at first and then I started to kind of and you went online yeah and then I went online <laughs> and I started looking around and I was like holy shit there's a lot of people who uh, 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 who uh, uh, who uh, uh, like say you can't show people mm -hmm. as an exotic other and not mm -hmm. in, in a documentary way mm -hmm. but you can show everything else that way but not mm -hmm. these people that mm -hmm. way it's, it's and I realized it was a controversy there it's the most amazing discussion it's blown my mind and in a narcissistic way i love it and sure. in that discussion in that discussion what i've learned and what i began to think and what i know is true is phenomenal and i think another lesson and, and it's when you sort of indulge in, in, in a journey in life, and I, my journey was the catalyst by what I experienced as a kid, trying to find these answers, who am I, who am I, what do I stand for, where do I fit, what do I know, what do I think, what do I want to communicate? Every time you push the boundary, every time you go off the edge, every time you, you indulge in something that's very, very, very sort of organic from deep within, you, you enter new territory. And this project took me into a new territory. And I remember when it was published, first of all, nobody wanted to publish it. Then the publisher said, well, we'll give it a go, but you know, people aren't really interested in tribes and, and let alone do they buy books anymore. I think in the last two years, the publisher sold more than 185,000 copies of it, which wow. for a coffee table book is, is you know, unheard of. And we're still analyzing why. I think for an, there are so many reasons why. One of the reasons is the controversy, is the fact that everybody has an opinion. 
Uh, but then when you start an actually analyzing, where does the controversy come from? What does it stem from? What are people questioning? What am I questioning? That's when it becomes uh, um, extremely interesting. Yeah, so what what is the kind of, what have you figured out there? There's a lot of people who are saying, you know, look, you can't show people this way. This isn't how they actually live. They don't even wear exactly this stuff and they're posing them and you're glamorizing the, their extinction and all this other stuff. Like what, what goes on there for you? There's many angles to this conversation, but let's go back to the beginning. Uh, why? When I first started, I've been making these pictures since I was a kid. So okay. uh, that was my answer earlier. It's been going on for the better part of 30 years without any real preconceived thought. This is what I see, this is what I feel, and this is what I want to show and share. The objectivity has only come since the conversation has started, since the publication of the book. And then, then you've got to go deeper, then you've got to start thinking, yeah, what, what is it? What, what am I doing? It is subjective, it is my point of view. First of all, I'm not a photojournalist. Let's get one thing straight. I'm not a documentary photographer. I'm not, I'm not, an, uh, I'm not an artist. Uh, I am an observer. Uh, I'm a creative observer. I'm on a very uh, parallel journey. I'm on a journey to talk about these people. It's also a very personal journey. These people are people that uh, have given me something, shown me something that's very special. And I want to share it. But I have to share it in this particular way. The way it has to be romantic. It has to be iconic. It has to be idyllic, uh, and it has to touch. Having taken pictures for as long as I have, uh, I know for a fact if I don't do it in another way, nobody will look at the pictures. Mm -hmm. I, as I said, I've been taking pictures in these parts of the world since t my time began. When they were documentary, when they were supposedly journalistic, although I didn't even feel I was a journalist at the time, nobody uh, paid them one second of attention. No sooner do they become uh, aesthetic, no sooner do they become romantic or idyllic, uh, beautiful, dare I say, and they're not beautiful pictures, they're beautiful people. Right. We as human beings are attracted to beauty. Anything that is beautiful, whether it's human or it's material, it, 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 it sucks us in. Um, much the same as this subject has. As you did, and as many, many other people, the first reaction is very uh, uh, emotional. Wow, these are beautiful. Then you start looking and questioning, well, is this beauty valid? Um, to be honest, this conversation, I started to also to ask the question myself, what, what, what is it about? First of all, every picture that is ever made by anybody in whatever context is always going to be subjective. It's always directed in one way or another. Uh, these pictures are unapologetically directed. There's not one moment of spontaneous spontaneity in them at all. Although, prior to making the pictures, I spend weeks, in some cases months, with these people without even lifting a camera. The ritual that goes into that prior to making the camera and trying to form a form of communication is please come to me, come to me at your proudest. Come to me at your most uh, iconic, because that's what I'm trying to see and record. Next to that, the majority of the people don't even know what a camera is. So I spend essentially weeks, and in some cases months, on my knees, walking around worshipping them, to all intents and purposes. It's very difficult to sort of visualize that over the radio, but you're sort of on your hands and knees, sort of bucking up and down. 
explaining how special you think they are and how beautiful you think they are. And then slowly, they present themselves to you. Now, what they're wearing in the pictures is, to all intents and purposes, is 80% is real, 20% is their Sunday best. Mm -hmm. So if I was to come and knock on your door on a Sunday morning after you've been out for a party the night before and you turn up in a dirty T-shirt and a pair of uh, Y-fronts and you've got a hangover and a cigarette hanging out and a secret girlfriend in the doorway, that's a more spontaneous picture. That's a sort of more journalistic picture. But if I was to come on Monday and say, well, I'm going to come next Saturday and I want to photograph you in a positive way, in a beautiful way, in a proud way, I want to actually communicate something special about you, you would invest time in that. I'd definitely take a shower, that's for and sure. And you'd take a shower, you'd do your hair, you'd perhaps even buy a shirt. Uh, if you're female, you put on a little bit of makeup. Then we would get into, then it's a very, very different way of presenting. That's what I did in all these places. And then the, the initial process is you make portraits. And then that's how you connect and link with the individuals. And then eventually you get into the transition, so I want to take you into the landscape. And you find iconic landscape. All the landscape images are set up. They don't stand under these waterfalls. They're not standing on mountaintops or sitting on horses. And we get there at the right lighting conditions and the right weathering conditions. And, and these pictures are set up. But with a message, and the same message that goes into, and I always argue, and it's a bit of a childish argument. If you go into a magazine shop here, 99% of the magazines also present a sort of uh, an idyllic way of being as a human being. It's not true reality. Uh, it's a way we aspire to be. It's a way we would uh, love to look at. It's a way we would love to feel. It's of people we admire. Uh, but it's all done in a very subjective, iconographic, beautiful way. All I've done is try to give these people that same visual dignity. You know, it's funny. I First of all, I love it. I love that you have shaken the snow globe and people have to respond to this. And I love how beautiful all of these people look. But, but they, um, they and, are. They re Thank you. But they really are. You know, people say, oh, you right. know, the people I love your pictures, Jimmy, or you make beautiful. I'm going to be direct as bollocks. They're the beautiful yeah. people. I've right. just invested uh, time. And, and, and giving them the dignity to say, I really want to record you in the most spectacular, monumental way imaginable. Because, and then the story goes on further because I want to show you. I want to talk about you. I think you're special. I think you're valuable. Right. I think you have something that we as humans have lost or are about to lose. And we need to discuss. Right. And until I put you on that pedestal, until I put you on the cover of Time magazine, until I put you on the cover of Vogue, the rest of the world is not going to look at you and take you seriously. That's right. And it's a celebration of them. And I think completely, what's interesting. Completely. Yeah. And what's interesting about it to me is it forces the conversation around, is there a right way to document endangered societies? And is there a right way to deal with this? Yeah. Just briefly going back to this, the way of, of seeing and representing. I had a large... Uh, one of the first large museum shows a couple of years ago here in the Netherlands when I first published the book. And there was a lot of discussion and there were about the better part of plus or minus 80 anthropologists and ethnologists involved in this discussion. And they all essentially said, well, we're not going to show the pictures because it's not real. And then I sort of quite enjoyed in a sort of masochistic way this sort of conversation. I said, well, okay, let's have a little bit of a game. And we were sort of sitting around a big conference table. And I said, put up your hands, how many of you have been to these places? And uh, it was about 3% of the people had been to any of the locations I'd been to. I said, okay, well, 
you know, I haven't read a book since I was a child, being somewhat facetious, and I have zero qualifications. I even faked my driving license. But I have spent the last 35 years of my life visiting these people. Now, what I did when I got there wasn't anthropological, but I was observing them. And I was observing them in a respectful way. Surely we as human beings in the developed part of the world should combine our skills and our strength, your learned strength, strength uh, and with my sort of uh, uh, knowledge which, I, which I've acquired from the ground. And then, there was an in then we started to have an interesting conversation. And then the eventual installation was stunning because we involved this conversation in the, in the showing of the imagery. And then we built a live studio, a photo studio in the museum. And this is a beautiful anecdote, if you bear with me. And I said, you know, I want to build a photo studio in the museum to photograph the public who come in. And, uh, and they also said, well, you know, we can't do that logistically, you know, and what's it all about? And I said, well, I'll organize it, I'll set it up, and I'll make sure there are 30 mini versions of me so there's always somebody available. And what I want to do is give the public a portrait. I want to give them a portrait in the same way and make it in the same way I give it of the tribes that I visit. Hmm. And I explained to my assistants, I said, you know, when the people come in, uh, the public, uh, invariably it's wet and it's rainy, so you have to sort of sit them down, take their coat off, their scarf, touch them, talk to them, and explain to them, you're only allowed to take one picture, because I take all my pictures with an analog uh, plate film camera, which is an extremely important process. You have to indulge in an awful lot of foreplay prior to pressing that shutter. So you actually really have to observe them. You really have to look at them, and you really have to make that portrait beautiful. And it was, it was an extraordinary success. We ended up having days when there were, there were literally thousands of people in a queue coming to get a free portrait, but not a selfie, not a happy snap, but a very dignified painterly portrait of themselves. And, um, and then what was beautiful, so there, there was that, you gave the public what they came to see and explained to them the, the visual and the technical process. And then you took them on a journey of, well, this is how I contact, connected with these tribes. So please look at the pictures and read the stories on the walls in a different way. And the museum had, had never had so many visitors, and it was three times more than the average uh, show. Because there was this, not only are you giving the subject matter uh, dignity and empathy, but you're also giving the viewer that opportunity to try and sort of uh, understand by giving them something in return. And it's and much the same way as we want to see ourselves in a beautiful and a dignified way. Uh, they want to see themselves and subsequently they're so represented in that way. That's a genius way to bridge that gap. Well, genius. It was by default, but the, it was beautiful. And we are now, um, there are... Uh, tenfold museum installations coming over the next few years. And part of the installation is one is uh, this photo studio where people will get a free portrait of themselves much in the same way uh, I'm photographing the trans. But next to that, we're building a dome because to validate, uh, trying to visually validate what I'm doing, I, one of my assistants who's traveling with me, we film everything with a 360 degree camera, one, you know, 17 GoPros on a ball. So you have this continual uh, experience where you can see me, you can see what I'm looking at, you can see the, the tribe standing on the mountain, but at the same time you see exactly what's behind me. And invariably there are a number of the same tribe all standing wearing t-shirts. Uh, or you see down in the valley to the right, or up on the mountain to the left. But you give the, the viewer this all-in-one experience. You take them there on the journey that I'm on, which is part of you know, this extraordinary new technology. 
So he's saying, this is how I see the people. This is how I get to connect to them, show them, respect them, and share these images with you. But this, you are right, this is the other side of the story behind the camera. But to try and uh, not patronize the public or the viewer or the online uh, critic, but take them on the journey of explanation of what I'm trying to show and share and why. And when you have shown and shared the actual images back with the folks you took the pictures of, how have they responded? Yeah, that, that's yeah another, another avenue to the story. I mean, the book came out, the discussion started, and I remember thinking, well, I have to sort of complete the circle. This is a, the journey hasn't finished, and the journey is that I've got to go back and show them the pictures, because in the picture-making process, I didn't, there were no Polaroids, there was no digital. I had no computer with me. So it was about the, 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 the human connection, which is extremely important. I mean, it's very difficult to explain, but when you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you have one sheet of film, a 10 by 8 sheet of film, and you know you've only got one moment to make that picture, you invest an enormous amount in the physicality of that process to explain why you're doing it. Uh, so you essentially become a little bit like a Mr. Bean, <laughs> because you have to find ways of humanly communicating without using language. Um, and fail in that process. And the more you fail, the more accidents you have, the more you cry, the more you fall, the more you bleed, the more they see your hu humanity. But then after that, going back with the pictures which they haven't seen uh, is, is an even more profound journey because what I found so far, we've been four times now, and I'm leaving next week, Tuesday, to go back to another location. There's an awful lot of emotion. And they interesting, they say, we're not overly interested in the pictures, but we're interested ultimately in the respect that you've given us by coming back and showing us what you took. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not an explorer. I haven't, I'm not the first person to go to any of these places. You know, photographers like the likes of Irving Penn were there prior to me. And that's many, many years ago. But they say nobody's ever bothered to come back and discuss this with us, what these pictures are about, why you think they're valuable, why you come and make pictures of us in the first place, and then ask us what we actually want. So that process is wildly valuable, and we're making a film of it at the moment. So I'm returning, not only going to new places, but returning in this whole sort of interactive story, trying to take the catalyst of the pictures and who they are and this whole discussion to another layer, uh, to another level. Yeah, they care about you and, and why the attention and yeah. more, more than the photo. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the discussion, they say, you know, we're confused and they're not as isolated as we think anymore. In the ones right. I've been to and visited, it's like sort of finding needles in a haystack. You know, by far, 99.99% of the world's running around with an Emirates T-shirt on. Uh, yeah. These are the last uh, uh, indigenous cultures. And many of them have smartphones. And they say, you know, we have this visual reference now with this new language of photography where we're looking at the rest of the world and we perceive that as being where the world we have to move into, you know. Should we throw away everything that we've got here? And then you get into the whole discussion, well, please don't. This is the simplistic way of looking at, excuse me, I'm burping. Please don't because you actually have something which is extraordinarily valuable, which is of not a material valuable, which is of a sort of human and a cultural valuable. Human right. diversity, yeah. Well, it's, it's human diversity, it's ethnicity, it's authenticity. Um, it's, there are so many layers in it. You know, I think the sort of the, the farcical irony, you know, you sort of make these pictures and, you know, in, in climates where it's the tropics and the, they're as physical human beings, 24 hours of the day active, they have bodies like gods. And then we here in our culture here spend the whole of our life trying to find time to fit into the going into the gym, 
to get away from our computers, to feel that. And it's not so much about how we look, but it's how you feel. And we're so far removed from how we feel in the developed world as human beings for what we were designed. And, you know, I don't have a fraction of the scientific sort of knowledge and opinion of somebody like Wade Davis, but that's essentially what he's saying. It's not about running around naked with a feather in your hair. It's about what it means to be a human being. You know, I'd love to transition the conversation to uh, what, what I touched on earlier is how, how to help them, how to preserve them, and, and how what you're doing okay, is well, doing it, that. Good, good transition, but very, very dangerous how to preserve. Preserve what? I mean, who am I? Let's put it into the me, because this is about me and my sort of exploration at the moment. I can't go back. I'm about to go back to Mongolia on Tuesday. And... To, to the, there's a group of these 80 eagle hunters and say, well, you've got to stay like this. You know, you've got to remain here sitting on your horses waiting for you know, the rest of the world to come whilst they take your picture, whilst you're holding your eagle on top of a mountain and the wind's blowing down the valley behind you. Uh, that's very patronizing. Uh, yeah, because you're beautiful and you're especially photogenic and, it, and it's an amazing, there's nobody else left like that. It, it, it's, it's, okay, this is extraordinary. You are extraordinary. What you do and how you live is extraordinary, but you want what we have. Fair enough. But let me enlighten you, speaking to them. Well, not all of what we have is what you actually need. And not all of it is what you want. Essence, elements are, definitely. But at the same time, elements and the essence of who you are is what we're trying to refine. So you're trying to sort of rebalance this sort of uh, uh, way of combining the, the two worlds. So it's not about preservation. It's about finding a, way, a, tran uh, a, a cultural transition. I mean, is there a way you've structured the business side of this to, to kind of give back to those well, guys? Yeah, again, outrageously complicated. You know, I felt very responsible. We, I have a business here in Amsterdam. I employ eight people to run this project. Uh, it's excruciating expensive. Financially, we are just about sustaining ourselves, so there's not a lot of money left over. But let's say hmm. there, were, there was money left over. You can't turn back up there with a little pot of money. Nine times out of ten, they're not, not using money. Uh, invariably, the government or an authority would take the money prior to you getting there, or one individual in the community would take the money. It would be used in the wrong way. So how do you give back? Two years ago, we, I started discussing, I wanted to set up a foundation, a charity, to, to validate this transition of giving back. And then a number of people came to me and you know, tried to say, well, help us buy land uh, so we can sort of preserve our culture on that land and then you actually start investigating that and then who owns the land in these places it's, it's wildly complicated so what I'm doing now is a sort of somewhere down the middle we, the charity was set up is I'm trying to uh, raise resources to enable other younger people uh, primarily school leavers early 20s who have perhaps an awkward, have had an awkward childhood, much the same as mine, but are creatively talented and curious to enable them to go off into the world and carry on this documentation in another more contemporary way. And that cannot just be photography, but be film, be sound, be music, be jewelry, uh, be textiles. And then the whole idea and the hope is that I'm not directly giving something back to the tribe, but I'm bringing this discussion to another generation, not only there, but here, 
and broadening this document. And a number of the museums I'm with, in discussion with who want to install the imagery that I've made are talking about a parallel exhibition of all this new material that may be generated by these, uh, this, the millennial generation who get funded by this foundation that we've started. So it's a sort of a, a, par a parallel journey. It's not, I'm not going to be able to help them to buy their land, but it's trying to take this subject further, higher, bigger, and uh, onto another level. Jimmy, as you take a step back in your own mind and um, mm -hmm. having traveled to all these different corners and connected with all of these different people and societies, mm -hmm. I wonder if you had to walk away from your life in your urban environment and let go of everything and choose one to spend some of the rest of your years with, maybe not forever, but mm -hmm. maybe some chunk of massive amount of time and mm -hmm. just be living mm -hmm. with them. Who, who would you connect with and why? Good question, but I'm not going to answer it directly because the... Bear with me. I feel I'm going to try and visualize this for you with words. Uh, life is a... I'm going off at a tangent, but I'll come back to answer your question in a second. Uh, we all stand on a seesaw. In Dutch, you call it a vipfap. I think the easiest way in life to keep that balance is keep your feet together in the middle near the fulcrum. By default, as a kid, uh, I was pushed and I, with one of their feet to the end of the seesaw for whatever reason. And so the seesaw tipped at 90 degrees, completely and utterly out of balance. To all intents and purposes, I was never going to get it back parallel to the ground again. By determination, bravery, courage, God knows what, I managed to get it parallel again, but that meant my other foot had to go to the other end of the seesaw, which subsequently meant I ended up doing the splits, using a metaphor, whereas the majority of us are standing with our feet parallel in the middle of the fulcrum, I'm now doing the splits. The more I go on these journeys, the more contact and connection I make with these tribes, the further my legs get away from one another. Mm. Uh, because I always decide to come back here, and I'll explain why. I not only have a family, but I have a responsibility to keep that seesaw parallel with the ground. As soon as I stay with one of the tribes, as soon as I uh, uh, hide in my childhood, the seesaw becomes vertical, and I'm not doing anybody a service, myself, mm the tribes or the developed world. It's imperative that I keep coming back. It has become an addiction and an obsession to keep going, so I'll do it until the day they throw me into the Ganges. But there will never be one place I will remain because where I'm trying to remain is in balance on the seesaw. Only then do you continually have the objectivity to how valuable they are there and how valuable we are here and how you can keep the two connected with one another. There is no finite location on the planet or tribe that answers all the questions for human beings, but whilst at the same time there's no finite place or urbanized area that in the developed world that answers all questions for human beings, it has to be somewhere down the middle. And I think that's, if you sort of put it in a polo pol um, pol political context, I was talking with Kofi Annan a few months ago, and he said what's happened with the world What's happening with the world at the moment is we're becoming afraid. Uh, everybody's taking sides. We're going, either going very far left or we're either going very far right. And that's going to be a disaster. We have to make sure as human beings we come back in the middle and meet in the middle. And whether that's culturally or politically or economically, uh, that's imperative. 
to keep that balance. If that, if that makes sense. It, it works for me. And I think the answer to, to my question is the place that you go is inside yourself, not to a specific destination way yeah, out. And, right? and, you know, and, the, and there's a very, you know, to go back to the very beginning of the conversation, um, I had a nice presentation here uh, a few weeks ago for 2,000 of the most important industrialist politicians, uh, do-gooders here in the Netherlands. And it was called Big Improvement Day. And, you know, everybody stood on the stage and beat their chests and, you know, they've achieved this and achieved that. And most of the people know what I do here. And they were expecting me to talk with films about connecting with tribes and having adventures. And, and I sort of inverted it. And I said, uh, my today's big improvement is going to be to explain to you why I do what I do why I go to such extremes, but at the same time, why I come back. And it goes back to this journey of childhood and losing oneself. And, and interestingly, um, you mentioned also at the beginning, this project had an investor. Now, the investor wasn't necessarily interested in the project. It happened by default. But as soon as the project became valuable, he decided to uh, uh, um, uh, abuse it because he mm -hmm. saw that this is a subject matter where it was a way to hoodwink uh, the developed world into selling other projects under something that's so pure. And I, uh, it, it got quite nasty. Um, and I looked in the mirror one day, much the same as I looked in the mirror as a kid, and I said, how on earth is it possible that I go so far off the grid, I go so far and get back in touch with something that's so pure, so beautiful, so important to human beings, Yet when I come back with that information, I get, in this case, uh, uh, commercially abused in the worst possible. Um, it, was, it was Macbethian what this guy was doing. And by being pushed, by coming back, by confronting uh, that, that, that the miscommunication, I managed for the very first time to start feeling why I do this and how important it is and why this sounds a little bit evangelical, so please forgive me, why I've been put on this planet to make these pictures. And as soon as I started to talk about that and explain that, um, I managed ultimately to get rid of him and then attract people who uh, are helping and enable me to take the subject further. Yeah, I mean, you found purpose, and, and sometimes the only way to find purpose... Yeah, but, but until you have to find that passion, and you have to be pushed right. and pushed and pushed and pushed. And whether you're pushed as a, as a kid, and whether you're abused, and you're pushed in your appearance, or you're pushed by the, the, the modern world and its consumerist materialistic greed, then you, if you're, by default, you can come out of the other side. So this personal journey of who are you, why do you do what you do, and you push and push, and you're pushed by others... The, more, the closer you come to that source of feeling, uh, the, more, uh, the more powerful you can become in the message that you're trying to communicate. And going back to the beginning, I'm only making pictures. I'm doing nothing else. I said I'm not an artist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not Wade Davis in the slightest. But I do know these people are beautiful. I do know they're special. I do know they're iconographic. And I do know we need to talk about them further. Jimmy Nelson, that's a that's a lesson that I think everybody can relate to. We're all trying to find that harmonic place that that's meaningful and purposeful for ourselves. And, you know, standing in front of the truth like that and facing it is something that all of us have to do on our own journey. Yeah. And, you know, like I said in this presentation, these people in this audience were very important. And I sort of inverted it at the end and I said, you know, OK, well, this is who I am. 
And I sort of asked them, well, who are you? You know, you're all here for a reason. You're all extremely successful. But have you ever asked how you got here? What pushed you here? And now that you're here, what are you going to do with that success? So you've got to go back and answer, who am I? And only once you've answered who you are, are you good for the other human beings? And that's how we should think and be as, uh, as uh, human beings on this planet. And whether it's me taking my sort of uh, romantic, idealistic pictures or it's uh, some sort of a, a businessman. Jimmy Nelson, thank you so much for being on Grow Big Always. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for having me. Was super cool talking with Jimmy Nelson. Be sure to visit his website, which is beforethey.com. And you can check out his exhibits, uh, his talks, uh, his foundation. It's a very, very beautiful website as well. And while you're online, head over to growbigalways.com. At the bottom of every single page, you can see a super quick and easy way to sign up and stay connected to the show. All that we're going to do on our end is send you something on Mondays, usually, when we have a new episode out, and that will remind you that there's a new show, as well as give you an inside look at who's coming up next and give you a chance to even ask them questions if you have them. In the meantime, I'm eternally grateful for all of you who've been reaching out and emailing me, sharing the show, telling others about it. Thank you so much for listening. 